This is Forum. I'm John Michaels, Public Affairs Radio Director for Dr. Adrian Hannes, Professor of Anthropology, Director of Archaeology of the lab at Augustana College. And you go way back to the Indian uh, exploration in Mitchell. I think you kind of started that, didn't you? Yes. Well, I mean, we've certainly continued it since 1983. And then we were the ones that, uh, you know, have been working with the Mitchell folks to put together the Archaeodome facility over there. So, And that's and, still going. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, we've had, this will be our 11th year of a joint field school with uh, students from the University of Exeter in England come over for a month and then join the Augustana students. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, well, that's a wonderful, wonderful site. And it's one that um, I think when that, the Archaeodome was established, a lot of people thought, well, why would you put that kind of funds into a building that you would use up the work within, you know, very brief time? And it turns out the cultural deposits go down about 12 feet, and we're down about three feet after well, about 11 years of work. So we've got a long number of years of excavation left. Well, there's more than one period, isn't there? Uh, actually, it isn't. Okay. That's a single occupation, but it probably spanned about 100 years or more. Well, there's going to be, certainly, I, I think with the blood run along the border here, uh, that park and the land that they're gaining there, is there going to be some archaeology maybe in the future there? I think so. We've done some, Our office has done some work uh, preliminary to the establishment of some of the structures that they're going to be building out there. In other words, they're going to be putting in some trails and some roads and I think eventually hope to build an interpretive center. So we were looking at those areas that they're at least initially intending to be developing. And um, so over time, I'm sure that as that entire enterprise expands, and on the Iowa side too, I think that there may be some expansion planned in the next few years. I remember as a kid, uh, which was a long time ago, uh, yeah, right. there were still, you know, kind of caves in that area that you'd find arrows, you know, when you go sledding in the wintertime. Oh, okay, kind of right, yeah. But the uh, thing coming up right now next Sunday, you've got uh, a, a fellow uh, archaeologist of yours coming down to Augustana College uh, to speak about some things up in Bismarck. Well, actually, um, it's, our, it's our third Sunday archaeological series, which is, interestingly, this is the 32nd year that we have sponsored this, so for January, February, and March each each year in the dead of winter, we try to convince people that they need to travel here to give talks. And I find myself having to select people mostly from the Northern Plains area since they're about the only ones that want to move around during this time of the year. So um, Dr. Kimball Banks is the fellow who's speaking, and his the title of his talk is Up the Wadi Without a Paddle. He's actually speaking about work that he has done um, as part of a very long-term research project in um, the upper area of Egypt and into Nubia. So the um, he's in he's located physically in Bismarck. He's an archaeologist in Bismarck. But the uh, talk will be about the very ancient sites that they've been finding in that desert area. What happens in in 1962, a lot of people probably won't even remember this, but um, prior to the finish of the construction of the Answan High Dam, the, uh, there was a joint venture between UNESCO and the Sudanese government to undertake archaeological investigations because it turned out 
that a lot of temples and so on were going to be inundated when the dam was completed and the lake was, the Nasser Lake was inundated. So uh, it turns out that Kimball's graduate work many years ago was at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And Southern Methodist, jointly with the Polish Academy of Science, and the Egyptian Geological Survey were the three main groups that were part of this combined prehistoric expedition, as it was called. And that started in 62, and the Expedition Foundation still continues to this day. And in fact, Kimball worked in Africa last year, and he'll be going back this year, I think. So well, It almost sounds like being he's a professor working over in Egypt back in 62 at that time. It was almost an inspiration for the uh, Jones and the Last Crusade a little bit. Well, almost. I mean, he he was there a little later. The, um, the fellow that was his um, dissertation chairman, Fred Wendorf, was the one that instigated this, uh, you know, joint agreement to begin with. And I think Kimball was over there in the early 70s, the first time he was over there. But but it's true that much of that I probably very definitely was part of the trappings that, you know, created that uh, Harrison Ford Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, set of programs. Well, archaeology seems very interesting, especially this time of year when people are in reading books more and getting cabin fever. But uh, the uh, aspect of uh, the fact that they're d- doing so much uh, fracking of oil up in North Dakota, aren't they a little worried about losing some of the archaeological aspects in, in our own? Well, I mean, and actually, um, the firm that Kimball is uh, the head of there in Bismarck, uh, which is a firm that comes out of Wyoming, Metcalf and consultants, uh, are absolutely overrun with work because they're having to survey each of the well pad areas before the drilling commences. And it's true that that um, Williston Basin area is archaeologically quite rich, and I I think that the uh, number of sites that stand to be, you know, possibly compromised, it's probably quite a large number. And so the hope is that they will be surveying the sites ahead of when the work is done, and some of the sites that need to be mitigated to salvage something from will be protected to some degree. At least there will be something, at least the location of the sites and some of the material will be able to be collected before they're completely destroyed. Well, a lot of people maybe, you know, you and I know, we just assume everybody knows, but maybe we should say that, first of all, this was a Jurassic Park. This is where Tyrannosaurus Rex, this was uh, an Abs- ocean at one time, and, yeah. and the glaciers and all of that was part of our our Dakota history. Absolutely, and the um, the really interesting thing, and I think a lot of people don't even realize this, is that the Missouri River, which divides our state, is actually the um, a demarcation of the extent of the glaciers as they were coming down across the area that we're in here in Sioux Falls and then extending west. So it was actually the river reconfigured itself along the margins of that glacial ice. And interestingly, the work that we've done here in the state over the many years that I've been here, which is 40-some now, um, we find here in the eastern part of the state that the very earliest material is very deeply buried because at the end of the ice age as the glaciers were retreating and there was such an incredible volume of water being, you know, poured forth, there's a tremendous amount of gravel that was being moved around. So many of the sites were either buried or obliterated. That's why so many uh, lake rocks are round 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely, because they were part of the, the lag deposits of the glacial gravels. But we can still find impressions of seashells and fish. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then when you go west, get across the river, of course, you have an incredible, well, really, the badlands of South Dakota has been known since before the turn of the last century as one of the richest fossil fossiliferous areas probably in continental United States, especially for the period of time, you know, some 15 to 30 some million years ago. So, And then the archaeological sites are also very well represented in the western part of the state because they're not as deeply buried and they weren't scoured out of existence because the glacials weren't the you know the glacial ice wasn't present uh, in that part of the state so well again we're speaking with dr adrian hannis professor of anthropology director of archaeology lab at augustana college coming up sunday the 19th at two in the afternoon till about four your friend from bismarck is going to be you know you and i are both old enough i, I tell people i'm so old i don't have tattoos but you know, really, when we were young, <laughs> yeah, right. to the things you're studying now, there has been changes uh, of how we think of things. Uh, oh, what we, absolutely. What we thought we knew is actually different, even in the last 20, 30 years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this field of mine, just like every other academic field, has undergone some really significant revolutions. Um, archaeology is a field that has always been very interdisciplinary. So whenever we now undertake any significant excavation, we certainly have people from a vast number of different disciplines, chemistry, physics, biology, geology, involved with us. And um, in every one of those fields, there have been such tremendous advances in the technology and the different, especially the types of uh, tests that are available Certainly, whenever I came into the field, we didn't have microscopic edgeware studies being done and residue studies. Yeah, we had a trowel and a shovel, correct. Yeah. Well, it's really true. I mean, we we were focused on a very, you know, different level. I mean, I suspect a lot of people don't realize that even radiocarbon dating is a a fairly recent uh, introduction. It came in in 1950. And as and as the last 50 years have progressed, it's been found, you know, that the, the, the calibration of the dating scales have been completely re- revised a number of times. So that back whenever I first was getting some dates on sites here in South Dakota, let's say in the 1970s, um, I'd have plus or minus factors on the dates of several hundred years. I mean, it could be a 1,200 plus or minus 300 date, so you could take it either way. It could either be that much older or that much younger. Well, now, even the very ancient dates that we're getting, going back like 12,000 years or so, we're, we're able to get um, dates that are probably a plus or minus factor of around 50 years. So that's a, that's a tremendous you know, that's a tremendous advancement. And in, like I say, the residue studies that are being done, the DNA studies that mm-hmm. can be done, uh, all of those things give us just such a tremendously different vision of, you know, what is available to be gathered. We used to, for instance, excavate fire hearths that were filled with rock because the prehistoric groups added rock to their hearths to retain the heat, mm-hmm. which is really a very interesting adaptive idea but 
we used to just gather the rock and maybe we'd weigh it. And that was about all you could do with it because you couldn't date it, obviously. But now there's some residue studies that are available so that we've actually been able to get, in some cases, from some of these hearths, depending on the preservation, um, we've been able to identify some of what was being cooked in the hearths, some of the plant material and so on. I mean, because of the residues that were remaining on the rock. So, again, it just it makes a scientifically more sophisticated um, set of techniques at the same time i think still good old field archaeology even as i practice it probably has a i still would like to believe it still has a place in <laughs> in the discipline well the more we know the, the more we we realize that uh, you know our ancestors really did have quite a lot of common sense on on things the heated rocks as you mentioned uh, the family that was uh, lost in nevada here about a month or so ago in the freezing cold they heated rocks and brought them into their vehicle and right. Did the same. And my grandmother used to give us hot potatoes to put in our pockets when we had to walk to school. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and people, you know, look at you now whenever you tell them those kind of stories, like you're probably madder than a hatter. But mm-hmm. but they were very practical solutions, and they were something that could be done with very limited resources too. Well, in your forty <clears throat> some years, what have you learned about the South Dakota uh, investigations that you've done that you've discovered yourself? I think. Well, I think that one thing that's happened, um, some of the work I did in the early 80s gave us a Clovis site, which is still Clovis, which dates around 12,000 years ago, which were big game hunting folk. Uh, And the site that I excavated, the Lang Ferguson site, had uh, two of the Ice Age elephants that had been killed and butchered. And that was an interesting site because the bone itself of the elephants as they were being butchered was being broken to make uh, tools out of. They were actually making, taking flakes off the elephant bone itself and using it as cutting tools, which um, much more recently I, of course, haven't been able to dispatch any elephants, but in dispatching some smaller animals uh, and breaking the bone, I don't know how many people realize that a bone flake is a very, very sharp-edged uh, tool and it and it's a very good tool for cutting, you know, cutting meat tissue. It it works better than some steel knives. But in any case, I think what what I've come to hopefully contribute along the way is that much of the archaeology that was done in South Dakota prior to the time that I entered the state was focused on the village sites, especially along the Missouri River, <clears throat> because it was salvage work that was being done prior to the dams and reservoirs being built, sort of like the Answan High Dam in Egypt that Kimball's going to be talking about. So the um, the focus really was on these villages that were agricultural villages, for instance, like the Mitchell site. But there wasn't so much information available on earlier, more nomadic lifeways here in the state, the archaic hunters and even earlier the big game hunters. And so I think that we have, um, no pun intended, but I think we have fleshed out, you know, a zone of the prehistoric record that takes us then back as far as the prehistoric record really goes in North America right now. Where were those mammoth sites that you were talking about? Uh, out in the Badlands. Mm-hmm. It, 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 uh, this particular ranch that we were on was um, just north of the community of Oglala, so it's um and of course we have the mammoth site there in hot springs so you know we already were aware of the fact although 
the mammoths that were present at the site in Hot Springs, that site dates between, I think, about 26 and 28,000 years ago. So that's a site that is a paleontologic site. It doesn't have any human involvement with it, whereas the site that I was looking at was right at the end, right at the period that we see as the, you know, the zone of extinction of the large megafauna, right at the end of the Ice Age. And so <clears throat> there probably were a number of things that were causing some of those sites to be, in other words, the mammoth kill sites that are found around North America, the date of the Clovis period, um, all of them seem to have a characteristic uh, that is a similar characteristic in that the animals were all being dispatched on the edges of ponds or bogs. And I think that the, the earlier thinking on that was that the um, animals were trapped in the ponds or bogs and then killed. And it's interesting because working, with, especially working with Dr. Frizen over in Wyoming, who was a led game hunts and so on before he became an archaeologist, noted pretty early on that nobody in their right or wrong mind who was going to kill an animal would kill it on the edge of a pond or a bog if they could avoid it because it would be the worst area to try to get in and try to butcher it. And so he said that that's a absolutely irrational idea that they were killing them where they were trapped. And as more studies have been done, and especially observations with modern animals in Africa, finally it began to be realized that animals, especially the big animals, uh, not just elephants, but I mean even moose or water buffalo or whatever, if they're wounded, they will try, or are sick, they will try to get to water to deaden the pain of their wounds. And so the reason we now think that the reason that these sites all seem to come to be on the edges of ponds or bogs is that the animals were wounded and then were tracked. And if the animals were aware of water sources on the landscape, that's where they headed for, which is really interesting. There would be a kind of a, some kind of medicine in mud, I guess, is what a lot of people... Well, yeah, and in fact, I remember actually whenever I was a fairly young youngster uh, getting stung by some wasps and my father grabbing some, you know, soft uh, silt out of a pond and putting it on it to try to reduce the, um, you know, situation. Well, Dr. Adrian Hannes, professor of anthropology, director of archaeology, uh, lab at Augustana College. One thing about being an archaeologist uh, is that you get to know a lot of people around the world. You have friends and, and uh, professional people all over. The, you've been around the world quite a bit. Yeah, it's actually been, I think that that's one of the things, the field itself, whenever students ask me about anthropology and archaeology, you know, I usually try to start the conversation out by saying if if you really are focused solely on earnings for a profession, it might well suit you to reconsider, you know, the profession of anthropology or archaeology because it isn't one of the great high-paying positions. But one of the great benefits really is the ability to work with colleagues all over the world. And I've certainly been fortunate to work in Egypt and in France and in Mexico and in Britain and so on, and it's and it's mostly just because 
I would go and stay with some of the folks that were working on a project, like, let's say, in the south of France. They've come over and worked with us over here. So basically, in both cases, it was if we could come up with the price of a plane ticket, you know, then we provided food and lodging as we went back and forth for each other. So One thing I think is interesting is that uh, you mentioned at the Mitchell site there were people from England coming over. Right. And it, it's kind of funny because we'll dress up like, uh, you know, the uh, uh, old ages, Queen Elizabeth and all that kind of thing and have uh, fairs and, and jousting and all that kind of stuff. But over in England, they really study the Indian, Native American. Well, they do. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it, absolutely. And we know that a lot of the visitors that come to Mitchell are from Europe and 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 uh, a number of the countries over there. I suppose Germany may be the country that has the greatest enthusiasm for the Native American studies, uh, you know, and France certainly and England and so on. So yeah, it, it's it goes both ways. I mean, we, <laughs> as you say, we we are replicating the the Elizabethan uh, jousting contests and they're replicating our Western. Uh, the very Wild first, West shows. The very first movie that really portrayed the uh, Native American correctly was, I think, Richard Harris, A Man Called Horace. It, yep, and absolutely. People, people don't realize that wasn't in Hollywood. That was made in England. It's true, <laughs> with an English actor. <laughs> yeah, and, right. uh, yeah. uh, so anyhow, that's just an observation. But uh, for people who are interested in archaeology, certainly coming next Sunday to uh, what, where in Augustana do they come? Uh, it's the Gilbert Science Center. And it's the auditorium, which is room 100, which is at the north end of the Gilbert Science Center. And, in fact, the doors on the north end of the building are just, as soon as you come through those doors, you know, the auditorium is right there. But, uh, like I say, it starts at 2. It's certainly open to the public. It's free. We have some refreshments. And the talks usually go about 45 minutes to an hour. And then there's a – it's open for question and answers and Frequently, it'll you know go on for another forty-five minutes or so. So, well, I've been to Israel, and and they they kind of laugh at me. They say, "Well, you're from South Dakota. You know what kind of history do you have compared to Israel's history?" Which you know we well know. But now, really, with what I'm learning from you, even in this discussion, is that South Dakota history goes back uh, ten, eleven, twelve thousand years. Yeah, it absolutely does for sure. And we, uh, it's really what you're looking at throughout the world whether you're working at the sites in Israel or whether you'd be working with the sites in this hemisphere, the adaptation of peoples for about 99.9% of our total time on Earth was to a nomadic life way of hunting and gathering and foraging. So the sites that you find throughout the world up until about the time of the um, agricultural revolution which in this in this hemisphere is first developing in mesoamerica with the uh with the hybrids that are beginning to develop the domestication of maize and squash and beans and so on and that eventually comes up here to the northern plains but it those seeds don't make it to the northern plains till about you know 2,000 years ago, so there's a long span of time, whereas in in the more fertile crescent areas of the Middle East, <clears throat> the agricultural revolution over there was going on it's about the same time as it was going on in Mexico in this hemisphere, and so it is about, you do find earlier 
settled sites in the old world, and you also find sites with domesticated um, animals as well as domesticated plants. But it's um, we we certainly don't have the antiquity of the earlier phases of human evolution as they do in, for instance, the site I was working on in France was a Neanderthal site, which dated back almost a quarter million years. But it's um, still what we have and what we should realize is that all of it gives us, in the broad sense, different parts of the total story of human humans as they both evolved and as they spread out across the world. And it's interesting because I continue to teach and believe that peoples were in the New World earlier than 12,000 years ago. It's just that we don't have really good sites to document it. There are always half a dozen candidates scattered from North America to Central America to South America at any given time that have earlier, seemingly earlier dates. But one of the things that would have caused great difficulty for the preservation of the sites was the period of glaciation. And up here in the northern plains, I don't doubt that there were people here earlier than 12,000 years ago. I just think the sites have been obliterated from by, the our, dis, by our discovering them. For instance, I will be called from time to time by people from the different gravel quarries around Sioux Falls because they will have found a mammoth tooth or a number of years ago, the folks at Merle and Roy found a tip of a tusk of a mammoth. But all of those are being found on a surface that's about 30 feet below the the present surface here. So we've got about 30 feet of material that was deposited at the end of the glacial period. In other words, that's how significant the gravel deposits and so on were. So the surface that the elephants and so on would have been living on around here would have been about 30 feet below our current ground surface. Is it true that the uh, uh, skeletons found before the invention of corn or maize, as you called it, that, that particular period, uh, their teeth was rather intact, but after corn was kind of developed in the agricultural aspect, that's when we had tooth decay more. Yeah, it's absolutely very interesting because, for instance, the stature of people even 100 years ago was considerably shorter than it is today, and they also had severe dental problems. And one of the things, I mean, again, this is not a negative, it's just a comment on fact. When the, uh, when the domestication of plants begins to... Um, be seen with human groups all over the world, you see two things. You see a, a shortening of people's stature, and you also see an immense rise in dental problems. Mm -hmm. And it's because sugars are being concentrated, and the diets are, are not as broad as they were when people were hunting and gathering. So, you know, it, you could, the, the skeletal evidence that we have uh, you know, from before the agricultural revolution throughout the world, the people were a stature of about equivalent to the modern stature, and they had very good teeth. So Something for the vegetarians, I guess, to think about. Dr. Adrian Hannes, we just got a minute left. Uh, tell us again about uh, Sunday, next Sunday, 2 o'clock at the uh, Gilbert Center. Yeah, it's at the Gilbert Science Center on the campus of Augustana College. The uh, talk will be in room 100. And which is the auditorium in the north end of the Gilbert Science Center. It's Dr. Kimball Banks, an archaeologist from North Dakota, who's speaking on work that he's conducted 
off and on over the last 30 years in Upper Egypt and into the Sudan area. Egypt right now probably wouldn't be a good place to go. They're having a harder time getting this this project together, although since it's a joint project, including the Polish Academy of Sciences and the Egyptian Geological Survey, it's it's being hosted by the country itself, but it's still, it's becoming more problematic throughout the whole Middle East, unfortunately. Well, the people, uh, young people right now, if they want to say, well, archaeology sounds like a really interesting career, they can take classes at Augustana. Yeah, absolutely. We have a major, mm-hmm. and so, uh, which is in about its seventh year now, and we've had, a, you know, quite a number of graduates already, and I would say much to everyone's credit and and i hope that this continues to be the case that the students have very successfully competed for slots in graduate schools around the united states and also a number of them are are working you know in in the profession in various parts of the united states so we've been pretty successful in placing people that have gone through the program well like the adage is you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been (laughs) And I'm sure you've heard that many times. Dr. Adrian Hannes, Professor of Anthropology, Director of Archaeology uh, Lab at Augustana College. Uh, Again, next uh, Sunday, the uh, 19th at 2 o'clock until 4 uh, at the Gilbert Center at Augustana. You can certainly uh, meet a lot of other people interested in archaeology. And thank you very much for being with us on Forum. No, absolutely. Thank you.